And I thought, well, this is now something for my children to experience, this beautiful, unspoiled nature. And what was particularly interesting about this, compared to Umfalozi Game Reserve, there were people who were part and parcel of this wonderful ecosystem. This is Expanding Horizons. Candid conversations, passionate people, important issues. Produced by the Jesuit Institute, South Africa. John Clark is a social worker and activist, committed to social justice both during apartheid and today. He has worked tirelessly over the last 17 years to help the local Amadiba community to save the wild coast from destructive mining and corruption. I'm here with him today to hear some of his story and to discuss how his faith and Catholic social teaching have informed his life's work. I am Francis Tewson, and this is Expanding Horizons. Welcome, John, and thank you for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Frank. John, give us a quick peek into your life, your passions and your hobbies. Well, um, my father was a wonderful man who instilled some very profound values in me. He, in fact, was knighted by the Pope uh, into the Order of St. Sylvester. Now, it wasn't just because he had seven children, but because he was deeply concerned about the poor and St. Vincent de Paul Society. And he really sort of was a role model for all of us as children growing up. And encouraging us to, you know, just have regard for people. Then when I was 17, I think the most defining experience that really set my course for the future was when an invitation went to our Boy Scouts troop that the Rotary Club of North Durban were going to sponsor some Boy Scouts for a wilderness trail in the Mfulusi Game Reserve. And this sounded like a jaw and some fun. So I found myself then spending a four-day wilderness trail with the Wilderness Leadership School, which had been founded by Dr. Ian Player. And I met a man who had a real sense of vocation in the person of our guide and our ranger, Donald Richards. And the first stop walking through this wilderness area was a rhino midden. And he sat us down and he, for what most of us just looked like a pile of dung, he started to explain the delicate web of life that was all around and how delicately balanced the ecosystem was and how Ian Player's vision was to fence off wilderness areas that would have no intrusion of technological modernization and development Mm. to allow nature to be undisturbed so that we could learn from it and understand that we are part of nature. Hmm. And that four days was really transformational. I came back, it was a different person. It was like a real, you know, a bit like that hero's journey of Joseph Campbell talks about, leaving your familiar place, going through this experience of having to encounter nature, see it at work, reflect on your own kind of inadequacies, And it was not a Catholic religious conversion, but it was very much a spiritual awakening. And then, as a young Catholic, the Catholic charismatic renewal, my aunt, who was a Dominican nun, all had very powerful influences to help shape me into being able to prepare myself for the world when I left school. And that was now 1974. The apartheid was beginning to tighten its grip. Archbishop Mm. Dennis Hurley was saying young white males need to seriously examine their consciences about 
whether it is just for them to serve in the South African Defence Force. Mm. And I was troubled. I went, did a year in 1975, uh, was called up to the parachute battalion of all places, and people always look at me and they say, oh my gosh, John, do you jump out of a plane? Well, yes, but the plane hadn't taken off yet. I made sure I got out of there as quickly as I could to try and find a role in a non-combatant capacity, which I then did. And university, 1976, the Weta a sudden a realization that South Africa, that I'd grown up to this warm, comfortable, happy home that I'd grown up in, that there was a vast world out there that was, you know, really crying out. So that then was like the big threshold point to university, and then I became conscious objector and I a social worker. And really, since the last 40 years, I suppose, I'm hoping to still be what... To seek the things that make for peace. And I use that phrase because that was a document published by the South African Catholic Bishops' Conference and which helped grapple with the challenges that we were facing in South Africa in the 80s. And my conversion, my Christian walk has really been, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Now, if you look at what I'm up to now, there's a lot of conflict around. And being a peacemaker does not mean that you're going to be, uh, you know, walking in a kind of a happy huddle all the time. It does involve conflict, confrontation, grappling, at times quite heated differences, and, sure. But I, I, deep down, it's about finding deeper relationship with myself, with the environment, with God, and with one another. And I've now, for the last number of years as a social worker, sought to try and take what I experienced in those early years and hopefully make it understandable for other young people, like yourself, Frank, <laughs> in the hope that you will see that this is really what gives life purpose and meaning. Over the past few years, your focus has been on helping the Amadiba community on the Wild Coast deal with all sorts of invasive issues, from a greedy Australian mining company trying to get at the mineral-rich Tlobeni sands, to corrupt MPs trying to put an unnecessary highway through the region. Could you give us a summary of the story thus yes. far? And let me put it in the historical context. I worked for the Independent Electoral Commission in 1994, was involved in this exciting transition from the injustices of apartheid into a equality, freedom, participation. Now, these are those themes which Father Peter John Pearson was saying is about the core of Catholic social teaching in all the encyclicals and documents. So I was so excited, and I thought, my gosh, this is so wonderful to see it. And sadly, after the elections, after a period, after the Constitution was written, things started going a bit south. Mm -hmm. And for me, the arms deal was for me a singular betrayal because I had been a conscious objector, a committed pacifist, and I just felt that that really was a kind of a dream that had been not just deferred, but turned into a bit of a nightmare. And mm -hmm. the reconstruction and development program, which I was so excited about in 1994, which was the manifesto for the ANC and the government of national unity, which would deal with all the injustice of the past, all these wonderful things, Suddenly we felt that there was another agenda and yeah. that the RDP was cancelled. So I was in a state of great disillusionment. And I share that historical context because I then was invited for a holiday down the wild coast by a friend 
to, to do a horse trail, and Sam and Amy and my wife went down, and we had it felt like we had stumbled into paradise. Mm-hmm. I'd never been to the Wild Coast before. I saw these beautiful, pristine rivers, and all my memories of my wilderness trail when I was 17, and I thought, well, this is now something for my children to experience, this beautiful, unspoiled nature. And what was particularly interesting about this, compared to Umfalozi Game Reserve, there were people who were part and parcel of this wonderful ecosystem. Mm. So that separation that we have tended to make as conservationists between nature and humanity was integrated. And I got to know and, and just felt that this was like, told friends about it. You know, in the next three years, I was working for the World Health Organization in humanitarian work in Africa and seeing really devastated places. So I would tell mm. all my colleagues, well, you want a good break, bit of R&R, go down to the Wild Coast. Then emerges this kind of horrific thought that these mineral-rich dunes, rich in titanium and other heavy minerals, were being eyed by an Australian mining company, who saw in them the 10th largest mineral deposit in the world, so they claim. Mm. And I just thought that this cannot happen on my watch. And I didn't quite know what I was going to do about it, but just felt at that moment that there was no ways. And through the Southern African Faith Communities Environment Institute with Bishop Jeff Davies, who had set that up, I was involved with that. Wangari Matai was a great inspiration to me. Mm. She came to the founding in 2005 and her vision as a Catholic ecologist and environmentalist, she made helped me sort of realize that the gospel values, the core aspect of the gospel value was the restoration of relationship, including our relationship with the earth. And ever mm-hmm. since then, I've never been able to read scripture other than through green-tinted glasses, if you can put it that way, even the whole Exodus story and the whole thing of it. It's about finding deeper relationship with myself, with the environment, with God and with one another. So reading Laudato Si must have been particularly gratifying for you. It was. And I mean, <laughs> and in fact, I still got to ask Father Sean McDonough if this is actually true. But I met him in 2011. The whole crisis and the controversy had been raging from 2007 to 2011, still unresolved. And he was out here in South Africa for the COP17 conference. And I had a you know, the joy of interviewing him as one of the Catholic Church's leading eco-theologians. And we had a long conversation, and I was telling him about the Wild Coast story and how this had become, for me, kind of like the work that needs to be done as the emblematic story about the human species' relationship with the planet and how to find a mutually respectful relationship Mm. based on Thomas Berry's thinking, where he says, you know, the the crisis that we're in is how to find a mutually beneficial and mutually enhancing relationship between people and planet. And I told him about it. And when Laudato Si came out, I learned that he had been one of the first drafters. And there's a particular paragraph in it, which was written about the Wild Coast, as far as I'm concerned. It might be useful for me to just quickly read it. Sure. Thank you. Those who don't know Laudato Si, I would say if you're really wanting a useful handbook to kind of get your head around the challenges we face as a human species on the planet, you could do no better than this. It's really a very, very solid piece of work. And in the section where he starts talking about a need for an integral ecology, he says, 
It is essential to show special care for indigenous communities and their cultural traditions. They are not merely one minority among others, but should be the principal dialogue partners, especially when large projects affecting their land are proposed. For them, land is not a commodity, but rather a gift from God and from the ancestors who rest there, a sacred space with which they need to interact if they are to maintain their identity and values. When they remain on their land, they themselves care for it best. Nevertheless, in various parts of the world, pressure has been put on them to abandon their homelands to make room for agricultural or mining projects which are undertaken without regard for the degradation of nature and culture. Now, that was like, well, that's what's happened here. And it was more than just about the Amadiba's identity being at risk, because by then I'd been involved for a good decade, and there was a sense in which my own identity, because I'd become so immersed and involved with the community and their challenges, it was like, well, this is about all of us. And it was a great encouragement for me to read in Laudato Si that I think Father Sean had heard it, and here we had the Holy Father basically recognizing and honoring it. And that gave me huge wind in my sails because at that stage in the whole struggle, we were yet to get to the point of going to court and getting a declaratory order. That came last year, 2018. The Amadiba community were successful in going to court and getting the judge to give them their declaratory order, which respected their right to prior free and informed consent before any mining right could be awarded that would deprive them of their rights. So that was the happiest day of my life. It was an absolute triumph. It was. And it was so interesting to see the convergence between Catholic social teaching and South African law and constitution. Mm. So that was like, you know, I couldn't stop crying because early on in the struggle, I'd met a a Sangoma, Jabolani Mboyisa, who since sadly passed away. And I'd asked him, I said, Jabolani, what do your ancestors say about this mining? And he said, we've been conferring as all the Sangoma together, you see Sangoma, and they've said, we must defend this land. So I said, but you know, Jabalani, I knew that there was going to be conflict and war because this is a place where the Ponder Revolt, for those who know the South African history in mm. 1960, that's where it started in exactly the same community in the Amadiba. Mm. And I said, but you know, Jabalani, we now have a constitution and a bill of rights. You don't need to go to war. You can go to court. Mm. It took from that 2007, 2018, 11 years to see finally my prayer, his hope fulfilled. Here we had the right for them to say, no, they don't want this mining. And I thought that would be the end of the story. Unfortunately, it hasn't quite been because the Minister of Minerals, Guido Mantashe, is not taking it lying down. He's appealing it. And so, the, you know, we are still in a bit of a tension and a conflict relationship with the state. There have been slap suits and <laughs> all sorts of intimidation, as you said. Yeah, a slap suit is an acronym for Strategic Litigation Against Public Participation. Social workers must engage. We're there to name the powers, to unmask the powers, but also to then engage them. And I had tried from the word go to engage this mining magnate from Australia, Mark Caruso, to try and help him understand the truth of what was happening on the ground. And he was very resistant to it. And I kept trying to say, Mark, you have not been well informed. You mustn't rely on these people to give you information. This is what you've 
tampering with. You're mining enterprises not considered to be beneficial to everybody. He wouldn't listen to me, and the situation, our relationship went to its ups and downs. And eventually, after in 2016, when the chair of the Amadiba Crisis Committee, Bazuka Khadeba, was shot and killed, things, mm. you know, it was really a tragedy for me. I just really had hoped that we would be able to stop the violence. And he then, I was interviewed by a journalist about it, and he's interpreting my response as uh, basically implying that he was responsible for the murder of mm. Bazooka. Now, I never actually said that. What I did say is that he bears responsibility for not embracing and choosing life and truth. And this is what happens when people make choices for money, wealth, and power, it's actually a death choice. Mm. It's not a life choice. And, you know, going back to Deuteronomy, choose life and thou shalt prosper in this land. Mm. So that rings out through the centuries, through the millennia, as being what we as a human species must have the consciousness to be able to do. So the slap suit is really him now trying to basically shoot the messenger rather than listen to the message. And it's proved to be a bit of an opportunity in a strange way, and this is why <laughs> I think the big Jesuit idea of God right straight with crooked lines. Yeah, we've been put under pressure. He's now suing seven of us now for various statements made in the public interest. And it's back into court, It's and it's an opportunity for us to say, hang on, freedom, equality, participation, that's all we've been trying to do. And Absolutely. what he's trying to do is restrain freedom, discriminate unequally, and then limit participation of people in decisions mm -hmm. that affect them. And that's just simply not acceptable, neither in terms of the Constitution of South Africa, nor Laudato Si, nor any kind of real decent civilized values. You said that it feels like Mark Crusoe sees himself as the savior of the Amadeba. How do you think that you have avoided the unfortunately fairly common white savior complex or paradigm that many working in similar circumstances and communities seem to develop? <laughs> well, some people say I haven't. Some of my friends in the EFF get very annoyed with this stale, pale male who's coming and trying to sort of be... I actually, I, it's something you have to grapple with, and the, the advantage of, you know, of not having power and not having wealth, you've got to say, well, how do you exercise your influence? And it's firstly having to kind of engage and learn one's own story and own one's own story and be transparent. And it's really very much about, A, developing a, a spirituality or allowing, you know, retreats, times of reflection. And I'm very, very influenced by Richard Raw's sort of teaching in his Center for Action and Contemplation. Mm. And in my trips back and forth to the Wild Coast, you know, it's a long journey. It's given me a lot of chance to actually in the car, switch off the radio and all the rest, and just to contemplate, reflect, and allow the stirring of the spirit to kind of like guide and direct to find good relationships of honesty. And I, I was just thinking recently, you know, we're all now mourning the death of Rachel Held Evans and Brené Brown, who's one of my great inspirations, a social worker who's very active on Facebook, says, quoting Rachel Held Evans, she says, imagine if every church became a place where everyone is safe, but nobody is comfortable Imagine if every church became a place where we told one another the truth. We might just create sanctuary. So sanctuary, mm. it's an interesting thing. It's not about this very warm, fuzzy, pleasant feeling where you're in a sort of a, a group think and everybody's agreeing with you and you're all feeling the same. It That's is safe. a place of discomfort. 
And when you look at Jesus and the gospel, there was a lot of discomfort all the time. You know, spirituality and growth and contemplation doesn't lead to a kind of a sense of it's all kind of nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. Mm -hmm. It is about honesty, and that's the question of the truth. And she says, a sanctuary where we told one another the truth. And as we know, the truth will set you free, but first it's going to make you miserable. And Mm -hmm. so it's about all of us have our blind spots. They don't show up as dark patches. I need you, I need everybody, I need my children, my wife, and every to help me be aware of the blind spots. I was trying to, I suppose, do that with Mark Caruso, but he wasn't my client. I was trying to say, but Mark, can you not see this? Mm. And there's a refusal to actually acknowledge, and you can't really help people. God respects our freedom of choice. Mm. I would just hope that in time, the pennies will begin to drop once people get out of power, once they find themselves like you know, the prodigal son in the, you know, in the pigsty. Deeper awareness sometimes flows, and then we can start experiencing grace, forgiveness, healing. But you can't avoid the conflict. Over these last years, you've developed several very close relationships with many of the community leaders and elders. Could you tell us a bit about sort of one or two relationships that have had the most impact on you? Yeah, I think, you know, Samson Gamper, who died two years ago, was a veteran of the Ponder Uprising. And he, when I first arrived, I was really keen to find out, I knew about what I'd read about the history of the Ponder Revolt of 1960. Mm. What an opportunity to speak to somebody who was a veteran thereof. Mm. And he was not educated in Western terms, but boy, did he have understanding and knowledge. And he, and one of the things I'm saying to me, he says, John, I don't need money except to buy cooking oil, but I can do without that. He says, because I've got my livestock, my land, and he lives a subsistence economy in the most beautiful spot overlooking the wild coast. Mm. And he helped me understand that in some ways our westernized education with its tendency towards binaries and dualisms misses the point. For people that have to live off and from with the earth have an insight into it. And Mm. he had an oratory and an insight which just astounded me. So I would always see him as being one person who has been an extraordinary influence. And the other one was his queen, Queen Masabuza Sikar. Because early on in my involvement, I followed the protocol and I went to the great place at Kalkeni where the king and queen live. And I was introduced to the queen and I discovered a fellow Roman Catholic, far more devout than me, the Swazi princess who had been betrothed to this Pondo crown prince and had taken this on as a vocation to serve. Mm. And she had served, she'd got an education from Columbia University, the master's degree, and here I had a woman who shared my faith and the two of us then have formed a relationship with her husband as well. And my role as a social worker became a bit more defined because here was a family because he was not well. He had diabetes. He was hospitalized. So I found myself in a very privileged relationship with the Ponder Royal family. Mm. 
nothing in my social work textbooks kind of taught me and prepared me for how do you deal with a client system <laughs> as a king and a queen. She supported the right of self-determination of the community. She supported their right to say no, and that thus became an obstacle, as well as over the question of the toll road. She could not see how such a large infrastructure project with all these billions being spent mm-hmm. could be what people needed, and she became a real spanner in the works of Sanrail. Mm-hmm. And through that, we've now formed a solidarity in a bond. Her husband was eventually deposed by President Zuma, uh, dethroned. They replaced somebody else who was a relative who would be more obedient and kind of compliant. And that case is still ongoing. But her faith is what kind of, I think, pulled me back from being too much of a cynic and an agnostic. And she's kept me faithful. How wonderful. And the whole... uh situation on the wild coast is a bit of a microcosm of the national state capture. Mm. It was. I mean, because, you know, all these minerals, 80% now of South Africa's mineral wealth is actually in the former homeland areas, Mm. which are subject to customary law and communal land ownership. And the the first sign of state capture was capturing the institution of traditional leadership. Now, Mm. it's a controversial thing in the first place, but it's in the Constitution that traditional leadership and customary law is still recognized. So she resisted the capture of traditional leadership system. Then we saw the capture of institutions of state, the Department of Mineral Resources, because, of course, nationalized mineral wealth. Well, how do you get hold of a mineral wealth that's in custodianship with the state? Well, you capture the Department of Mineral Resources. Mm-hmm. And we've seen all that play out. We saw it playing out on the Wild Coast five or six years before. It prefigured what was happening with the Guptas and all the rest, the National Prosecuting Authority, uh, you know, the, the Hawks and all the rest. So she's had to endure as a, and that's why it helps me rebut anybody saying who's this stale pale male. I'm just doing my job as a social worker to support people who challenge injustice. And that's in a sense given me a huge privilege because as we now see the rolling back of that mudslide, mm. I'm hoping that just as it started in Ponderland and the Wild Coast, we can see the reversal there. But the community is now empowered. They know their rights. And I think it's just a matter of time before we start seeing restorative justice taking place and that the Amadeba would be basically a good news story to be told in a context where there are very few of these things globally. So being raised Catholic, and you studied social work, obviously, but you also studied theology and religious studies at UCT. And then you've also worked at places as diverse as you said earlier, the ISC and the WHO. Mm. How has your faith impacted the trajectory of your life? Well, the first choice I made, if you're going to stay in South Africa, well, you've got to be involved with South Africa and African issues. And I guess it's really just the same prayer that I made on my conversion as a 17-year-old, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Well, we need to do that through a certain institutional context and different opportunities. And I found that as a social worker, you get a very broad education on a number of fronts because we are looking at things holistically. The whole is other than the sum of the parts. Sometimes it's greater, sometimes it's less than. What is our role as social workers to try and steer things or encourage things towards the whole being greater than, to make sure that there is a benefit to all concerned and that things work? And in my faith, 
gives you an understanding that to be a good systems thinker, you've got to have great humility. You've got to, mm. there's that sense of saying, well, you're not ultimately in control. There is a sense in which there's a system beyond our particular system. Things are far greater and more complex than what the human mind is capable of assimilating all at once. And there's this marvelous miracle of life happening. Well, when Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new, moving from, you know, just simply a development and a liberation to a transformational reality. Well, that transformationism cannot happen without transcendence. Mm. One needs to have this capacity to kind of get beyond ourselves and to see things in a larger frame, even though that will still be partial. And you think of Paul's writing, you see things through a glass darkly, but only as you mature, you see more and more. It all hangs together. There's a more of a mystical sense. And I think my aunt Veronica very much helped me understand the mystical tradition and to take regular retreats and to understand scripture as dynamic, as not just a static proof text type of way of proving theological assertions, but as a living word which actually inspires us in the present, in our faith, and in our communal relationships. Talking about transformation, working at the CWD with Anne Hope, could you tell us a bit about welfare, development, liberation, and then transformation? Yes. Um, I was very fortunate in the time that I moved to Cape Town. I was doing theology studies at the University of Cape Town to be employed by CWB, as it was then, Catholic Welfare Bureau. And Peter and Anne Templeton, who had founded it, thought the time had come to sort of shift paradigms and talk about Catholic welfare and development, CWD. Uh, and in her books, Training for Transformation series, has this lovely table which she constructs about different responses to poverty. You know, you give a man a fish, feed him for the day, well, that's welfare. You teach him how to fish, well, that's development. But then beyond that, there is, well, what about if the fish stocks are actually unequally distributed? And so in case of land at the time, where 80% of the population has to live in 13% of the land. Well, that's an injustice. That's a need for a liberation. But once we've got access to the fish ponds, are we going to fish those fish stocks on a sustainable basis? So you can see how the liberation is about freedom, our constitutional right, and then the transformation is about, well, how do we find a relationship with the world, with the planet, and realizing that global human economy is a wholly owned subsidiary, as somebody put it, of the global human ecology. We cannot have an economy without an ecology. How do we fish on a sustainable basis? And Anne was great help for me. She helped me understand the necessity for conscientization and how conscientization now was not just simply about the unjust political structures, but the unjust economic systems and structures. And to try and say, well, how do we look to an economy which serves life rather than life serving the economy? to the optimization of benefit rather than the maximization of profit. Mm. So that then puts us up against the dominant status quo and that conversation that needs to happen. And, of course, Catholic social teaching. You go and read it all, and I just wish more people would read it because there is a wealth of deep scholarship and thought and ethical fine-tuning in those documents. Finally, how do you think by engaging in this work that you are helping to expand the horizons of hope? Mm. Well, a colleague from Australia gave me a wonderful line, which I constantly repeat. She says, hope is believing in spite of the evidence and then watching the evidence change. 
And I took that away and I thought to myself, well, on a pure rational legal basis, you say, well, you've got no hope here. Hope understood as be a generative process. It's not the same as optimism. It's not just rosy prospects. Hope is a quality of engagement and curiosity and creativity that is released. Mm. And through my experience now, I've been astounded to see how when people have that quality of hope, it becomes, in a sense, self-fulfilling, which doesn't mean they're not going to hit obstacles. But where does one get it? Well, one has to then not just simply kind of kid oneself and engage in rationalization. One has to kind of really be in deeper dialogue with others, with scholarship, with oneself, and for me, with people who are on the margins. Because you see, these people have found their deeper humanity because they've had obstacles all the time. And I'm constantly humbled and amazed that for all my capacities and supposed sort of normality, that it's people who have not had those advantages who have helped me understand the relative importance of hope. And I'm constantly out on a limb, but that's where you see the blossoms grow. Thank you, John, for your time, your boundless energy, your enthusiasm, and especially for your passion for justice and peace. Thank you. Please comment and subscribe to our podcast for more candid conversations, passionate people, and important issues. Expanding Horizons is produced by the Jesuit Institute South Africa with music and sound by Francis Tucson. This episode was presented by Francis Tucson. Visit us at www.jesuitinstitute.org.za.